Money FM 89.3, best of prime time. You're listening to Prime Time on Money FM 89.3, and now it's time for Eco Money, where we bring you the latest in sustainability and finance. Now, this time last year, social bonds were all the rage. This year, <laughs> ESG funds are all the rage. The hot topic of the year, I guess, but how can investors really determine the authenticity of an ESG fund? I see what you did there with hot topic and climate change, Tim. <laughs> okay, so for example, does adding the word sustainability to an already existing fund really make it sustainable? And how do they avoid issues such as, well, greenwashing? Well, to find out, we're joined on the line now by Idris Boy, and she is the ESG practice lead at Matri Asset Management. Idris, welcome back to Primetime. It's been a while since we spoke. Always a pleasure to be here, Rachel Timothy. Great to have you with us. So, Idris, let's start off with that first question. This time last year, social bonds, all the rage. Now it seems that ESG funds are in vogue. (laughs) But the question is, how can investors determine the authenticity of an ESG fund and why is it important that they do so? Yes, so first thing to put into context, um, before the pandemic, Social bonds were growing on average 40% in 2018 and 2019. Right. But in 2020, it grew by more than eight times. Mm. And in the first half of this year, social bonds already reached 90% of last year's issuance. It's now at 140 billion US dollars. Looking at ESG ETFs, it's actually always been a popular investment instrument. Uh, since 2017, its quarter on quarter average AUM growth rates uh, hit 100%. Uh, and it's right now. Uh, 42 trillion US dollars as of quarter one. Um, but I think one key reason ESG ETFs have taken front and center stage uh, in 2021 is that mainstream investors are starting to look into the ESG theme. And ESG ETFs is a quick and easy way for investors to jump onto the ESG investing bandwagon. As compared to social bonds, uh, they tend to attract uh, a niche group of investors. So if we come back to uh, ESG ETFs, like you rightly pointed out, there are a few things to note to determine the Mm -hmm. authenticity. The main thing I'd like to start with is that the underlying definition of ESG for each ESG fund can differ. Not all ESG funds are equal. For instance, some will include global sustainability leaders across sectors uh, based on ESG scores rated uh, by a data provider. And that can include oil majors, agriculture players, which tend to have a higher occurrence of ESG controversies. Other funds may be screened for fossil fuel sectors or United Nations Global Compact principles. The important thing is for investors to do their own homework to understand the ESG frameworks adopted by the fund houses and for their respective funds. So investors really need to be educated on ESG investing and the best practice really is for them to develop their own benchmarks of what they consider as ESG. Okay, Idris. I mean, that's, uh, that may sound a bit overwhelming to some investors because if people are calling one fund green, but perhaps to somebody else, it may not be ESG. So what are some of the telltale signs of greenwashing then? Well, I would look from the perspective of perhaps investors should uh, get in touch with the asset managers and ask whether or not they have an in-house ESG specialist contributing to investment analysis and whether the fund houses use credible ESG data providers 
to inform their investment decisions. All right, Idris, uh, there are reports showing that uh, the evolution of climate change from an ESG matter to an intrinsic business risk. What are your expectations, though, of businesses on the climate uh, agenda in the next, uh, well, few months or years? From the company's perspective, this is really a matter of survival, uh, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And it is about physical and transition climate change risks, um, which are very real for these companies. Uh, going into physical risk, uh, there are things like extreme weather, which can cause resource-intensive industries to be very stressed to the point that they could be left with stranded assets. Uh, for instance, uh, water-intensive manufacturing sites that can't operate because of prolonged drought. When we look at transition risk, it comes from policy and market changes, among other things. And uh, from courtrooms to boardrooms, we see that the pressures on companies uh, to take climate action are becoming more mainstream. Just in June, uh, we saw two oil majors being forced by activists and the courts to accelerate the speed at which they transition to a decarbonized uh, business model. So businesses really cannot afford to take climate change risks for granted. Mm -hmm. In the next few years, uh, I would think that countries serious about tackling climate change will set national policies uh, and targets that will trickle down to regulators. Regulators will want to monitor uh, companies' decarbonization paths, as well as encourage the financing of such activities. So two ways that regulators can go about it. One is by making environmental impact disclosures mandatory for large companies. And the second is for investors to disclose the climate impact of their portfolios. Mm. And Idris, we're already starting to see that happen, though, aren't we? We're seeing regulation come into play across the board internationally. So from a business perspective, though, they're seeing increasing pressure. I mean, it's from all sides, from from investors, from from their stakeholders, from regulators, from governments. So how do they balance all of this going on? It's a lot to take on board. I think a good thing is as compared to... A few years ago, companies might be worried about being early adopters and having to spend capex towards decarbonization, which they think might make them less competitive than their peers. But right now, um, given that you know governments, shareholders, media, public attention, a, a lot of it is on climate action, the playing field is a lot more leveled. So I don't think there's compromise. Idris, the pandemic that we've seen so far over over a year now has shown a spotlight on ESG, but adoption here in Asia is still quite slow compared to other parts of the world. What are the key drivers that uh, you think can propel uh, ESG's adoption here in Asia? Yes, I, I do acknowledge uh, that is the trend where Europe uh, has certainly been leading the way mm-hmm. with progress in ESG. But Asia is fast catching up, uh, and more specifically, the E uh, environment in ESG is and will be the driving force in Asia. This is very much observed with Asian governments setting carbon neutral goals um, as a priority for China, Japan and South Korea last year, even in the middle of the pandemic. I think the main reason uh, that these governments choose to do so is actually very similar to the pandemic, where the governments are bearing the brunt of the cost of helping the countries recover. It's the same with climate action failure. National governments will be the ones ultimately having to pick up the tab if there isn't any intervention. Mm. From the World Economic Forum 2021 report, it found that 
climate action failure was more likely to happen than the pandemic or the next pandemic. And it almost has the same level of impact uh, as pandemic. So seeing the fallout from the current pandemic, we can only imagine uh, the fallout from climate action failure. Hence, I think that's why Asian governments are definitely considering this. We're speaking with Idris Boy, Matri Asset Management's ESG practice lead. Idris, very quickly then, on the importance of the E when it comes to ESG, more specifically with climate change, everyone's been talking about net zero and net zero goals, but what does this mean specifically to investors? What do they need to be mindful of here and does it really matter to them? I would say yes, it matters uh, and I'll try to be brief. Uh, The net zero is very much dependent on scenario analysis. Mm -hmm. And right now, there's more than one scenario analysis development body. Each body develops the scenarios depending on scientific research, countries' net zero targets, data and targets coming out from companies. And all these are actually constantly being updated. So the scenarios and the models as well. There isn't one standardized scenario or matrix to help investors determine a net zero portfolio easily. But there are proxies to indicate how decarbonized um, our investment portfolios are. And the proxies can be taken from the TCFD or Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosure Recommendations. Three proxies that I'll bring up. uh, One, implied temperature rise. Two, carbon risk rating of the portfolio. And three, weighted average carbon intensity or Mm. WACI. So there's a lot more that we can go into. Um, But uh, in short, a lot of scenario analysis will be required uh, and it is very much trying to be aligned with the Paris Agreement of uh, two degrees or under temperature increase. Definitely a lot to digest there, Idris. Thank you so much for sharing all of your insights with us again today. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure, Rachel. Timothy. Thank you. Take care. Idris Boy and she is the ESG practice lead at Maitri Asset Management. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.